So good morning. My name is Keith. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Redeemer. I have the opportunity, the blessing, to bring the word today. So this morning we're going to look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Like, we, we get that. Those who are Christians or those who know about the church know that to be a follower of Jesus is to have recognized your sin, to have confessed your sin to God and recognized the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ by trusting in Him and His death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. So a Christian is a follower of Jesus, one who trusts in Him for salvation and follows Him above everything else. The Scripture teaches that a follower of Jesus is to, for, for a follower of Jesus, our allegiance is to be hit to Him above country, above city, above nation, above uh, biologic, the, our blood, our families, that our allegiance is to Him first and foremost. That we are to walk in the way that he walked and follow his commands and his example. That is what it means to be a Christian. And guys, when we first hear this, we, hear, we speak of, of the gospel is the good news. When we first hear this, we're excited. We're impassioned. When the, when the gospel first connects with our hearts and our minds, we are, in, we are just amazed at God's grace for us. We see our sin and we repent. We see the love of God in Christ and we... And we we pursue that. We say, Lord, I want that forgiveness, please. I remember tears running down my face, believe it or not. I think it's happened twice while I've been married, but it happened at that point before I was married. Um, but we, we weep. We rejoice. We are thankful to be a child of God. Over time, we get plugged into a church where we learn about how to follow Jesus, how to get to know him more by prayer and by reading the Bible and worshiping and hearing his word proclaimed. We hopefully learn more about what God did for us. We just sang about justification and sanctification and glorification in our songs. So we learn in justification what Christ has done for us in forgiving our sin and making us right with God, children of God. In sanctification, we learn what he accomplished at the cross to make us holy, make us like him, and how that's happening over time. And in glorification, we see what he will do with, with new bodies that will not sin. What he will do in us when we have new bodies that will not sin. So we learn all these deep truths, right? And these things make us rejoice and we're thankful and we're happy. And as we strive to follow Jesus over time, we can frequently allow the very dis disciplines that we use to know and love Jesus, those of prayer, Bible study, worship, church attendance, fellowship, evangelism, meditation. We can let those same disciplines we are to use to, to grow in our knowledge and love for Jesus instead become something they should not be. We can start out the Christian life clinging to Jesus, but over time we can let our disciplines become something that put us into chains instead of something that sets us free. We can begin to see the disciplines of our Christian life. If I'm not in the Word, if I'm not in prayer, if I haven't evangelized this week, we can see those things as ultimate rather than God's grace. We can say, I'm not right with God, or God's not happy with me because I didn't share the gospel. 
or God's angry at me because I didn't give a tithe or God's unhappy with me because I sinned again or I didn't pray or I didn't read my Bible. We can make those things that God gave us for our good into chains. We can even go so far as to begin to base our salvation in how often we read the Bible. Do we read the Bible every week or every day or every year? We can base our salvation in those things. Or even worse than that, we can begin to see our sin as something that's greater than God's grace. And instead of repenting and turning from it, we write our own souls off as ruined because we sinned. In the end, we can take the grace of God that's meant to save us and the disciplines he gives us to set us free to know and love him in confidence and obedience. And instead, we can make Christianity about our own performance and morality. We can make ourselves the, ourselves the ultimate arbiter of God's approval. And we make ourselves and our performance the most important part about what it means to grow in Christ, to be sanctified. Brothers and sisters, I say this not as some out there thing that maybe one of you are dealing with or have thought about, but something that I have struggled with throughout the Christian life, a performance anxiety about fear of, of matching up to some standard that God has for me that if I don't, he'll be unhappy with me. I've struggled with this for years. And I know many other, others have here that I've talked to but I want you to know that there is hope. When we see that all that God has done for us in Christ, what he accomplished, and how he, Jesus, is at work to transform us, it frees us from this despondency, from this performance mentality, instead gives us grace and power in Jesus to pursue God out of love and obedience and joy, not fearing our own performance, but trusting in Christ's work. We're going to see today what Jesus has done for us in Hebrews 10, 19-25. We're going to look at the argument the author of Hebrew gives and what this means for us. And what we're going to find today is that Jesus' death and resurrection have perfectly sanctified those who trust in him so we can walk with God in confidence and obedience. Hebrews 10, 19-25 is in page 1007 in the Pew Bibles, the Black Bibles. And it begins, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed of pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This morning, we're going to look at two major points in this text. First, we're going to look at what Jesus has accomplished, what Jesus has accomplished. And second, we're then going to look at how we are to live in light of that. Now, let's first begin to look at verses 19 through 23 and what Jesus has accomplished. 
If you look at verse 19 here, the first word is therefore. So, you know what that means for a preacher. you got to go back further to figure out what he's talking about. So, that's fun. Um, so often in the Scripture, we get this teaching that the author will point back, whether it's the author of Hebrews, Paul does this oftentimes, therefore, because this is true, this is how we live. This is, this is true. This, this argument continues. So he points back in, earlier in the book, and throughout the book of Hebrews, we are taught how Jesus is better than angels, how Jesus is better than Moses. He is better than the priestly system, that he's better than the temple system of sacrifices. We learn that he's a better sacrifice than all has come before. And in chapters 9 and 10, we, t- we learn about how the redemption is found in the blood of Jesus is better than anything before it. In verses 1 through 18, the author argues twice that the blood of Jesus sanctified and sanctifies those who believe in it. So I do want to read two small sections from uh, 1 through 18 just to kind of get the argument that this therefore is pointing at for us. So uh, verses 8 through 10 say, When he said above, you have desired, desired, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, those offered according to the law, he then added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we see we've been sanctified. It's one of the truths that he's pointing back to in that therefore. Let's look at 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we see two truths here. In verses 8 through 10, we, say that we, we see that we have been sanctified, done. In verse 11 through 14, we see those who are being sanctified, these truths that he's pointing to and that therefore. Now one short, short point here, one theological point here about sanctification very short, I promise. Throughout the New Testament, we see this. This is not just the author of Hebrews messing up the tenses of his verbs. Throughout the writing of Paul, the writing of Hebrews, throughout the New Testament, we see this, that sanctified is referred, that people are talked to as having been sanctified or as having been saints as already accomplished in Christ, finished. That's referred to as definitive sanctification. That being said, the same books, the same verses and chapters talk about sanctification as something that is ongoing. It's a process that's happening over our lives as we become more like Jesus. This is what's called progressive sanctification. It's present, it's ongoing, it's the work of Jesus being applied in us to become more like him. The Holy Spirit does this, Jesus does this in us as he transforms us from one degree of glory, more like him. So the therefore in verse 19 that the author mentions is Jesus died to save a people for himself. He paid a price for our sins to make us children of God. But not only that, the price he paid 
sanctifies his people. The reason I brought up this performance mentality is so often for Christians we can think that Jesus gets us in the door and then it's up to us to get further. But that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus gets us in the door and he's paid for our, our, our sanctification for us to grow in Christ and in the end he paid for us to have glorified bodies that will be with him forever and never sin. He did it all. All to him we owe. Jesus has accomplished this. That's what drives the argument this author's making. Due to this, due to these truths, the author says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then he goes on to let us draw near. Due to this, by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to go before God. When you think, if you've read the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, um, we have assurance to enter the holy places, to go before God in prayer and worship. Before Jesus, the temple system was in place. And only the high priest to the Jews could go before the holy of holies where God stood, where there was a curtain between where the people were and where the Ark of the Covenant, where God dwelt with his people. And only the high priest go once a year with the sacrifice for sins before God to make atonement for their sin. But the people could not go before God themselves. And there was a priesthood the people would have to go to to have them sacrifice their, their sacrifices, their animals, for, to shed blood for their sins. Time and time again, they would have to shed blood for the forgiveness of sin. Now due to Jesus, due to his blood, we can have confidence to go before God ourselves. We can have this confidence to approach God in prayer, in worship. We can approach him in scripture reading knowing that he will illuminate, he will bring that scripture to light in our hearts and lives so that we can, so as, so we can know him. When we approach him to confess our sins and repent, he will hear us because of the blood of Jesus. Not because of our works, not because our attitudes are 100%. We don't have to get right before we go to God. Jesus made us right so we can go to God. I want us to get that. Because it's so easy to think, I have to get myself right to go to God. That's not true. Jesus has made us right so we can go to God. Even if we say, Lord, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling to, to desire you more than this sin. That's okay. We can go with, to God and ask him for help. I, I, I love when Jesus walks on water and Peter gets out of the boat. And he looks at Jesus and he's walking on the water. He looks away from Jesus. He begins to fall. I love Peter's statement because it's the perfect prayer. Help me. So often we can go to God, we feel like we can't go to God until we have it all figured out. Like we're going to a boss or a parent or, or, a, or a, a, an equal. But God says we can, we can come to him as a child. We are his children. We can come to him and say, help me. And that's enough. He knows our hearts. And we can do that because Jesus made a way. What a blessing we have in him. He is the gift of God. He is the, the great high priest 
for us. Now, Jesus does all this for us. We have confidence to enter the throne of, before the throne of grace in Jesus. But that's not it. In verses 22 and 23, we get commands that we are to obey. But we can also see how Jesus accomplished these. In verse 22, let me read these real quick. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In verse 22, we can see that we can have full assurance of faith, which is in Jesus, accomplished by him, given by him. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed. And we are sprinkled clean, we are washed of pure water by Jesus' work. In the Old Testament, Moses and the priests and Aaron would sacrifice an animal and they would mix it with different things. Uh, they, would, they would take that blood and they would use a hyssop branch and they would sprinkle it against the altar to sanctify it. At times they would sprinkle the people in order to sanctify them, to make them holy before God, to make them ritually clean. But Jesus' blood is better. It doesn't just ritually make us clean so we can go before God. It makes us, it transforms us. It cleans us even from what it says here in verse 22, an evil conscience. What does that mean, an evil conscience? See, our conscience, that little voice in our head that all, at times excuses and times accuses us, can so often lead us astray, can lie to us. That same conscience that can say, this is wrong, and be absolutely correct. This sin is wrong. Repent. Can also hold us to misplace shame for actions that were not our own. It can hold us to guilt for things that we've been forgiven of. And it can lie to us so often. So we can be cleansed of this shame or guilt or, or self-condemnation by the blood of Jesus. What does this look like? What does it mean to, to be, have, our, have our consciousness cleansed, to be cleansed of shame and guilt? It means that we can lay these things at the feet of Jesus. It, sorry, that's a Christianese term that doesn't mean much. It means that we can trust in Jesus' finished work, that if we have committed sin, that we can come to Jesus and confess and repent and then we can, we can walk away from that guilt. We no longer have to feel it. He paid the price. There is no more penalty for it. If we have repented of our sin, we no longer need to condemn ourselves for it. Christ was condemned. He died for that sin and we bear it no longer. Guys, there is great, great freedom in that. That Christ died for us and for our sin that we need to bear it no longer. It can cleanse us from shame and guilt. So often shame, in our culture, sometimes shame is seen as bad. Sometimes shame is good. You know, I'm ashamed of my behavior. I need to repent. That's a good shame. But false shame abounds as well. Shame for what others have done to us. Shame that we didn't have the power to stop something. And that shame we don't need to carry. That shame we can ask the Lord take from us. That shame we can ask the Lord to help us with. And our guilt. 
We don't have to walk in guilt constantly. If we repent of our sin, Jesus has paid the price of that guilt and we need to carry it no longer. We oftentimes talk about forgiving ourselves. I know I've talked about that before. I need to forgive myself for this. Please show me in the Bible where it talks about us forgiving ourselves. It's something we hear in our culture, but the reality is if God has forgiven us, we are forgiven. And his opinion on our, we need to allow our hearts and our minds to engage with the fact that God's opinion on our sin matters a whole lot more than how we feel about it. If he has set us free, we are free indeed in Christ. All this done by Christ. Jesus does one more thing I want to point out in verse 23. He is both the foundation and the power of our hope. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is the confession of our hope? It is the gospel. It is what Christ has accomplished. And it says, let us hold to this without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Christ Jesus is both the, our hope. He is the good news. But not only that, Christ Jesus is the, 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 the source of the strength. The reason we don't waver is his faithfulness. He will accomplish what he promises. He will do what he has promised. He is faithful. So Jesus is not only our hope, but he's the reason for our hope. He's the strength of our hope is in his faithfulness. So Jesus has, and I've only begun to scratch upon the, 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 the globe that is all Jesus has done for us in Christ. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing for, uh, stored up in heaven and, 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 and accomplished in him for us. Christ has accomplished so much for us. He paid the price for our sins. He paid the price to make us holy. Guess what that practically means? We can change. The Spirit dwells within us. Christ is at work within us. We can have real change in our lives change of hearts, change of minds. We can, be, we, we can and will be transformed more and more into Christ's image because he is at work. Jesus gives us confidence to approach God. We can go before God. We don't have to fear God that he's going to lash out at us. For years, for years, my father wouldn't enter the church. And for years, he would always tell us, you know, I, I, I'm afraid that the ceiling's going to collapse on me. And yes, was he joking? Yes, you get it. But at the same time, he has no confidence to go before God. He's not trusting in Christ's finished work to give him that confidence. When he enters the building, he feels condemnation and fear. He jokes about it, just like I joke about things, to kind of hide how we're really feeling. But... Uh, there is confidence to go before God, to come together as the church, to, to worship the Lord and hear his word, and have confidence that he will work through his word because of what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus has cleansed our hearts and our consciences. He's washed us. He has made us clean. He's purified us. So we don't need to carry misplaced shame, guilt, and fear. He works 
And He will work as we repent and trust in Him and follow Him. And last, Jesus is both the foundation of our hope and the strength of our hope. So, so often our faith can be in our, our faith can be in our faith. So in other words, well, I, I, I'm really trusting Jesus right now, so I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm trusting Jesus right now, so my relationship with God is strong, and I'm trusting Jesus right now, and I feel like I'm trusting Jesus right now, and therefore everything's good. Well, our faith is not to be in how we feel our faith is doing. Our faith is not in itself. It is in an object or in a person. Our faith is to be in Jesus. And the strength of our faith is not in how we feel every day. Good grief, you eat bad food and you can feel miserable for a week. I did that on vacation. It was horrible. But guess what? That doesn't change my faith. My faith is not based upon how I feel. My faith, the strength of my faith, is found in the object of the faith, that is Jesus. Jesus says, if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you can ask this mountain to be moved and it will be. Why? Why is that little amount of faith enough? Because the source, the strength of the faith is not the size of the faith, it's the object of the faith. The strength of our faith is Jesus. Not us. It's what he has accomplished, what he has fulfilled, and what he has done for us. So let's have trust in him, not on our feelings, but place our trust and our hope in him. So like I said, I have barely scratched at what Jesus has accomplished for us in the last 15, 20 minutes. Um, but I hope I've, I've gotten some of that across because as we look at how we are to live, we live in light of what he's accomplished. So next we're going to look at how we are to live in this passage. The commands the author gives us. And we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25. Let me read those for us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We see three commands here. Draw near, hold fast, and to consider. We're going to look at these in order. But before those three commands... The author says something that's so important. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. He's saying this is not, he's not writing this to an individual. Saying, Kyle, draw near. Kyle, hold fast. Kyle, consider. He's saying, let us, church. The Christian life is not one meant to be lived alone. We live it together as a body. The emphasis here is that these actions are to be done in a community of faith. There is definitely application for these points that's personalized. As you read these, you may say, I need to draw near to God, or I need to consider. But 
And that's good, and that's right. But there's the strength and the greatest growth in walking with these is to do it as the church. We can find the greatest growth in Christ-likeness within the body. We can find the greatest healing from sin, forgiveness of sin, healing and counsel and gospel application when dealing with shame and guilt through the church. I know I have over the years at Redeemer here from the blessing that all, many, many, many of you have been to me. And it's my prayer that we as a church, as a Redeemer, would help one another to follow Jesus as his disciples. Now the first command we're given is let us draw near to God. We're to draw near with a full, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We've already talked about what it means for Jesus to sprinkle us clean, to wash us, to have a full assurance of faith, all that Jesus has done in this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But I do want to point out, to be a Christian is to draw near to God. As we live the Christian life, as we grow in Christ-like maturity over time, we should see ourselves drawing closer to God. What does that practically mean? Well, drawing near to God means we can be quicker to prayer, quicker to faith, quicker to trust the Lord, quicker to repent. It means that as we draw near to God, His Word rests in our hearts and is applied in our lives. We see ourselves slowly becoming more like Christ. Now we can see this in ourselves at times. We draw near together as the church, as we worship, pray, as we have fellowship, as we love one another. We give, we serve, we go to the nations, we send others to the nations. We can draw near to God together as we follow his commands. Oftentimes, one of the two of the hugest blessings of the church are these. We are almost completely blind to ourselves. We can be completely blind to our strengths and to our weaknesses. And one of the major blessings of the church is that they can identify areas of Christ, Christian growth, of Christ-like maturity that they've seen in our lives. They can say, wow, I've seen how you've grown to love others. I've seen how you've grown to serve the church. I've seen your passion for evangelism grow, your passion for discipleship, your love for the lost. And they can identify that in our lives because sometimes we can be so wanting God to change this one thing in our lives. We can be so focused on a sin struggle or a situation or a, or a, life, or a life, the place we are at life, that we say, Lord, you're not doing anything. And we can say that, to, you know, I can go to, to Mike and say, Lord, Mike, I don't feel like Lord's doing anything in my life. And Mike can say, well, here's three things I can see the Lord's done in your life in the last two years. The church is good for us because it points us to Christ and it points us to how he is at work in our lives. The second way the church can be good for us is the church can help us identify areas of weakness, areas of sin. So often sin blinds us. And the church, because we know one another, we love one another, we are engaged in one another's lives, we're able to point out graciously, lovingly sin in our lives and call each other to repent. 
This is a blessing, guys. It, it is uncomfortable. It is painful. It is at times rebuking. But what a blessing we have in the church that we can love one another enough to call one another out in our sin and to call one another to repent and trust in Jesus. We need one another. The second command we're given is let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So we're to hold on to the gospel. We're to hold on to the teaching we have of Scripture without wavering. And we do this together as a church. We exhort one another and proclaim the gospel to one another in the church because we recognize that the gospel is not something we needed back then when we came to Christ. We didn't need the gospel once to repent of our sin and now we're good. No, we need the gospel daily. We need to remind one another of the gospel and proclaim the gospel to one another because we recognize we need it in our day-to-day life. We are to encourage one another to hold fast to the gospel and to point one another to Jesus' faithfulness. I would not be where I'm at today. I would not be at Redeemer. I would not be anywhere. I can't imagine my life without all the people in it here at Redeemer and outside of Redeemer who have loved me and pointed me to Jesus in the midst of the hardest times in my life. I can think of a dozen off the top of my head. I wrote them down, of course, but I can think of them off the top of my head as well. But Mike and Kyle, Josh, Tyler, Phyllis, Caleb, Phil, Joel, Claudia, Ann, and Ben, and Ben, and just and another Josh. And the list can go on and on and on of people who have spoken the truth of the gospel and set me on fire for Jesus again and again in the church. It's my heartfelt desire that's not just how I've experienced life at Redeemer and life in the Christian body, but my heartfelt desire that that would be all of us pointing each other to Jesus, whether that's in the church, whether that's before or after church talking, whether that's life transformation groups or community groups, whether that's showing hospitality to one another, that we love one another and point each other to Jesus because the gospel is good news not only when we were saved, Every moment of our lives and throughout eternity is good news. The third and last command we're given is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to consider, we're to think of how to stir one another up to love and good works. I love this. We say stir. The word that English uses is stir. Another word that you could use is provoke. We're to, what a command we have here. Think about this. We're to think of how to provoke one another to what? Love and good works. Normally when we think of provoke, we think antagonize. But no, we're to provoke. We're to help one another to pursue love and good works. What's great is the author does not Give us a list. Here's what love looks like. Here's what good works looks like. Do it. He says, use your sanctified imaginations. Use the mind that God has given you. Use your knowledge of your brothers and sisters in Christ to consider, to think about how to provoke them, to to stir them up to love and good works. He calls us to use our minds. It's It's a glorious thing. 
to, to, to think about how to, to stir one another up. What does that mean? For sometimes, John has been a great example of someone who can stir me up. Because he's like, dude, let's go share the gospel. I'm like, uh, okay. Or, hey, bro, let's go pray. Oh, we're going to share the gospel while we're out there. You know, John is able to stir me up to love others and share the gospel just by engaging me. You know, many other people in my life have done this. John, I just saw you and it came to mind. But uh, we're to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, how to provoke one another. How do we do that here at Redeemer? Well, sometimes individuals say, hey, let's do this. Let's, let's get some kind of evangelism training or let's go out in the neighborhood and walk and share. Other times somebody says, hey, let's serve Mercy's Refuge or let's serve Orphan's Treasure Box or let's serve another ministry or another place in the community. When we say these things, yes, it, sometimes it can feel like here's a bunch of list of things we need to do, but really it's us, you all, the elders, the church, finding ways we can help one another and stir one another up to love and good deeds, good works. Let's continue to do that, brothers and sisters. Let's continue to stir one another up, to know one another well enough that we know where we need to be stirred up, but also to help one another find opportunities that we may not even think of to love others well and share the gospel with them. The author ends this, this, this section by calling the church not to neglect to meet together, as some do, but to meet and encourage one another all the more as they see the day drawing near. The church is to meet up, to encourage, to stir up, to do all these things, to help one another to draw near to God and hold fast to the gospel. They were to do this all the more, all the more as they saw the day of Christ drawing near. And they were to do all these things, all these actions, all the ways we were to live. You know, if you, may, you notice that most of what we're to live, in fact, all of what we're to live, is empowered by what Christ did. Even the second half, 24 and 25, that I didn't mention in my first point, look and they point to Christ's return. Everything about how we live is to be fueled by what Jesus has already done. Our lives are not to be fueled by this pessimistic, self-interested, robotic kind of, I have to do the discipline and I have to do this and I have to do that in order to be right with God. It's Jesus has accomplished it, and I love him, and I'm thankful, and I want to live in light of that. There's a huge difference between freedom in Jesus and legalism that ties us to our, 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 own, our own performance. We're not going to see perfection this side of heaven. We're not. We're going to struggle with sin. We're going to struggle with all kinds of things. And when we think we might get one down, the Lord is gracious enough to to shine light in other areas of our lives and we realize we have more to deal with. And that's God's grace because we never move beyond the gospel. We are a repenting people and a people who trust in Christ every day. And we'll do this together from here, you know, from the day we are, we are born into the body of Christ until the day we die. We are, we are, we are born again into the body of Christ until the day we die. So we've looked at what Jesus has accomplished. We've looked at how we are to live and how he worked to sanctify a people for himself. We've seen today 
just a scratch, just at the beginnings of what Christ has done for us. What he has accomplished, how his blood has been shed. My friends, these truths are not just theological or doctrinal or, or just head knowledge. These truths about what Jesus has accomplished are to give us hope. They're to give us joy. They're to fuel us in times of weakness and sorrow when life looks dark and there's no hope. We look to Jesus and what he's accomplished to give us hope. We look to him and his strength and what he has done for us to give us the light. He is the light of the world. Our hope's in him, not our our circumstances. Our sin struggles are not ours alone. Christ is it. He's already paid the price for the sin. He's paid, the, he's paid everything for us to be sanctified and made like Christ. So there's hope and there is strength and there is power to fight these sins. Not, we're not bound by them and unable to move forward, but God gives us the power in Christ to be able to break those shackles he has already broke those shackles, but to be free of the sins and not be enslaved by them. This means the power of God is at work in us and through us as we live with one another and help one another to trust Jesus, to live out the Christian life, to fight sin, and to grow in Christ-likeness. And we saw how we have to do these things together. The Christian life cannot be a lone ranger mentality where you don't get plugged in and you don't, and you don't live with each other. You can, but that's not what Scripture teaches about the Christian life. And the, the fullness of joy and fellowship and the, the growth in Christ-likeness that we desire comes through being plugged into a church. We need one another. We need one another to remind one another to draw near to the Lord, to hold fast to the gospel. We need each other to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So, church, let us, I am so thankful for all the ways I see this as a body. And I want you all to know, Redeemer, I am so blessed by all the ways we do this. I really am. I, want to, I just want to exhort us to continue to commit to one another's good, to one another's growth in Christ-likeness. Because He is worth it. And because out of our love for Him and each other, we want one another's good. This can be hard to do, but we have all that Jesus has accomplished to fuel that. We have all that he has done so that we can have hope and joy and peace in him. Let us pursue Christ-likeness together with confidence and obedience because of what Jesus has accomplished. Let us pray. Father, your plan, your plan in Christ before the foundation of the world Before anything was created, you had planned to redeem a people for yourself, to save them, 
to sanctify them, to make them your children. And what a beautiful and glorious truth that is. Lord, God, open our eyes, open our hearts to contemplate and to trust and to rejoice in what you've done for us in Jesus. And Father, I pray that what Jesus has accomplished, what has been done in Jesus would fuel our lives as Christians, not out of a desire to earn anything or out of a feeling of guilt, but Lord, out of a feeling of joy, out of a, out of a rejoicing in your love and being empowered by your Spirit. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us or forsake us, but that you, you dwell within us, making us more and more like Jesus.